science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Welcome. I'm Joe Schwartz. Uh, I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. Uh, I also teach chemistry, and uh, that is uh, my passion. I think that chemistry is the central science. It ties all the other sciences together because everything in the world is based upon molecular action, how atoms join together to make molecules, what molecules do when they encounter each other, and that, of course, is the essence of chemistry. It's the study of matter and the changes that matter undergoes, and virtually everything in our life comes under that uh, umbrella. I'm happy to answer whatever scientific question you may have. At 514-790-0800, you can also text your comments to 514-800. And as usual, I will throw out a question uh, that uh, we can later go on to discuss. Uh, Let's start with this one. Where did the name of the movie Gattaca, G-A-T-T-A-C-A, G-A-T-T-A-C-A, that was a movie starring Ethan Hawke, Uh, Where did that name come from? If you know the answer to that, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. But first, we are going to talk about ink. Where would we be without it? No books, no letters, no recorded history. Although, of course, with the electronic age, ink is not quite as important as it used to be. Most people, of course, have not given very much thought to ink. It's just assumed that somehow it has always been there. Well, it hasn't. But it has been around for a long time. The very first inks used were carbon inks, made by burning organic matter and collecting the soot, which basically is composed of very small particles of carbon. The soot was mixed with water, and often some natural tree gum was added to keep it in suspension. Carbon ink did produce an effective blue-black color, but it smudged easily, and it could also be readily removed from a document. The breakthrough in ink technology came during the Middle Ages with the sophisticated development of iron gall ink, although there were previous versions of this even as early as the 12th century. And this was all thanks to insects. Aphids, flies, or wasps often laid their eggs on trees or plants. The gall wasp, for example, chooses the oak tree. The mother-to-be punctures some of the small branches or twigs on the tree or the leaves on the oak tree. Why? Because that's where she deposits her eggs. And there's good reason for this. First, Nutrients from the tree can be used by the developing insects. And second, the tree, in an attempt to protect itself, provides a protective environment for the eggs. The oak tree's natural reaction is to encapsulate the eggs in little nodules to prevent further attack. These nodules are known as galls. That's G-A-L-L. And they are particularly rich in a set of chemicals collectively called tannins. Historically, These have been used to tan hides. The word tanning, of course, derives from there. In an acidic environment, tannins break down and release gallic acid. And that is the key to iron gall ink. As the term implies, the color is formed when gallic acid reacts with compounds of iron. By the Middle Ages, it had become clear 
that boiled crushed oak galls when mixed with vitriol produced a dark color that could be used as ink. Well, what was vitriol? The chemical name for vitriol is iron sulfate, a substance that occurs in nature as a mineral. This chemical reaction was not discovered during the Middle Ages. It had long been known. Pliny the Elder, the Roman historian, had described the use of galls to produce dyes. Indeed, he amused people by dipping a piece of papyrus into a solution made by boiling oak galls and then rubbing it with vitriol to turn it black. Actually, the initial color produced by mixing reagents to make ink is quite pale, but when the ink is applied to the paper or parchment, it quickly turns into an indelible dark blue. And there's some interesting chemistry going on here. In order for the iron to react with gallic acid, it first has to react with oxygen. In other words, it has to be oxidized. Iron has to be converted from its ferrous state to a ferric state. And that happens by loss of an electron. Anyway, this reaction goes to completion after the ink has been applied to the paper and has been exposed to the air. Ferrous sulfate is quite soluble and easily impregnates the paper. Once it converts to ferric and forms ferric gallate, it is no longer soluble and therefore becomes very difficult to remove. That's why Leonardo da Vinci used iron gall ink to write in his notebooks. He hoped his writings would be preserved for a long time. The American Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, also written with the same type of ink. Today, with the widespread use of synthetic dyes, iron gall ink has become a historic relic. But it's still fun to play with. Tea actually contains tannins as well and can be used to make ink. All we have to do is add a little ferric salt. And uh, you just mix the tea with some iron compound, some ferric salt, and voila, you have ink. Well, water contains naturally occurring iron. So basically, whenever you drink tea, you are drinking a little ink. And you can demonstrate this. The iron gallic acid complex breaks down in the presence of an acid. So when you add a little lemon juice to your tea, the color immediately becomes lighter because you have destroyed the ink. Well, that's some interesting chemistry, isn't it? The fact that the U.S. Constitution and other documents like Jefferson's inaugural address, for example, were written on parchment with iron gall ink uh, now presents somewhat of a problem because over time the ink uh, degrades and also because they weren't always very careful in balancing the amount of iron and uh, gallic acid, there was an excess of iron in the ink and that turns to rust. And rust is, is acidic and it degrades the paper. So unfortunately, many of the old documents are degrading. Uh, those of you who have been to the U.S. National Archives in Washington, D.C., which is just a, a fascinating place to explore because all of the documents, the important documents of American history are there, uh, you may have been uh, actually quite shocked to see the uh, U.S. Constitution or, in fact, to not see it. Uh, it is uh, there under uh, large plexiglass sheets uh, preserved in argon gas, but it is barely legible. And that's because uh, over the years, the ink has degraded. 
Uh, the same kind of story with the Declaration of, uh, of Independence. And uh, they do have facsimiles beside it so that you can uh, you know, read, uh, read those so you know what the documents actually say. But uh, the ink on the originals has uh, actually caused uh, uh, pretty severe uh, degradation of the paper, and the ink itself has uh, faded. Nevertheless, it is um, interesting to go to the National Archives and see these um, important uh, documents. And aside from the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, there are all kinds of you know, letters from George Washington, who wrote numerous uh, letters, all of them with uh, iron gall ink. So now you know a little bit more about uh, ink than you knew before. Uh, we're going to take a break, check traffic. After that, uh, we're going to talk masks, and we're also going to talk vaccines, and we'll see if anyone has an answer to my uh, uh, question that I asked, which is where did the name Gattaca for the movie uh, come from? You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. The question I have hanging out there is about the movie Gattaca, G-A-T-T-A-C-A. Where did that name come from? And uh, I will supplement that question and give you another question uh, because people seem to be having trouble, although I'm surprised that you're having trouble with that question. The next question is, why are food and beverage producers interested in the monk fruit? The monk fruit, M-O-N-K fruit. Yesterday, there was a big demonstration here in Montreal by anti-maskers. And uh, this week in the United States, anti-maskers are organizing a mask-burning uh, celebration. This is absolutely ridiculous. I, I, I just can't understand what on earth these people are thinking uh, when we have an increase in the number of cases, especially here in Quebec, we're above 200 uh, new cases every every day, whereas we were down to 100 just a, a week ago. Uh, we've seen an increase due to uh, uh, people going to uh, bars and taverns. Uh, some of this is probably also due to uh, school openings. Anyway, we are certainly not out of the woods with this coronavirus business, and we're not even turning the corner, as, as President Trump has uh, suggested. The problem is very significant, and there is very, very good evidence that masks can mitigate the danger. Uh, there's a very interesting experiment that was just done with uh, hamsters, a particular kind of hamster called the Syrian hamster, which is very often used in laboratory studies because they're very good models for, uh, for people. And what they did here was uh, uh, put hamsters in, uh, in a cage with a, a division in between the two halves of the cage. And that division could be uh, made of different materials. And they infected a hamster on one side of the cage with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And uh, they investigated whether or not the hamster on the other side of the cage would uh, succumb to infection. And uh, they tried various materials, and it turns out that the materials that are used to make masks, like these simple surgical masks that so many people wear, were very, very effective in protecting the hamster on the other side of the cage from being infected. And when there was no division, the infection was, was rampant. Now, it is true that, that we're not hamsters, but still, this is very, very indicative. And if you're not convinced by that, uh, it also turns out that... Uh, 
even if people are wearing masks and they do get infected, it turns out that the infection is much, much less severe. And here, too, we have a very interesting uh, uh, study that uh, came from an Argentinian cruise ship where passengers were provided with surgical masks and the staff wore N95 masks. Now, of course, there were some uh, cases of, uh, of infection, but of all the infections, in this case, 81% were asymptomatic. That is, they showed uh, uh, that they were infected because of, this, of you know, the testing. But 81% of the people who were infected were asymptomatic, that is, showed no symptoms. As opposed to another cruise ship, a very similar one, uh, where uh, no masks were provided and only 20% of the people who were infected were asymptomatic. And the evidence is, is just, you know, uh, accumulating that uh, masks work. Uh, studies have shown that in homes where someone is infected, the chance that others in the same home will be infected is significantly reduced if other family members uh, wear a mask. Sure, sure, it is not the answer. I mean, there is no one answer to, uh, to, to this. But at this point, I, I think to, to not wear a mask is um, totally unscientific. And this business that, uh, you know, they're interfering with people's personal liberties by making us wear masks. Well, sometimes your personal liberties should take a back seat to the overall health of society. And uh, th there's just no evidence that in areas where universal masking has been implemented, the rate of infection has gone down. And even where... Uh, people have been infected, they are more likely to be asymptomatic. So uh, we need to follow this this through. And certainly in any indoor environment, shopping centers, etc., uh, masking is, uh, is indicated and it is based on scientific evidence. This is not just uh, hearsay. And it's very difficult for me to understand what these people who are out there demonstrating uh, against masking, or even worse than that, who say, you know, saying that uh, uh, the whole COVID-19 is, is, is a hoax. Uh, this is, is just unbelievable. And uh, especially in the US, I mean, we, we see the, the, that country just unraveling at the seams because of all the false information that, uh, that is going uh, around. All right, uh, let me just see if Tom has an answer. Yes, Tom. Hi, so Gattaca, that movie with uh, Ethan Hawke? Yeah. About a dystopian uh, universe with based on eugenics. So maybe uh, uh, GAPC is, uh, has to do with genes and the, the helix? Yes, it is. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're sort of dancing around the, the, the fact, but yeah, you basically had it. Uh, Gattaca, uh, the, the letter is G-A-T-T-A-C-N-A. Uh, refer to uh, the pieces that make up uh, DNA. And uh, these are what we call the bases, uh, guanine, cytosine, adenine, and thymine. And if you remember kind of the, the picture of DNA, it looks like a spiral ladder. And the rungs of the ladder are these uh, bases. And those are the ones that make up the genes. So the, but let's not frighten too many of the listeners with actual science. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. know it is. Yeah, yeah I, I'm afraid that this is uh, true that people these days are, are frightened, uh, especially when they can't tell the difference between science and pseudoscience. 
And uh, this is becoming a, a huge problem because pseudoscience is making uh, just gigantic leaps uh, out there. Uh, I was uh, listening this morning to uh, Navarro, who is one, one of uh, Trump's henchmen, and uh, his uh, defense uh, of uh, you know uh, uh, Trump's uh, obviously understanding that the the virus was dangerous very early on in February, and the defense that uh, you know that uh, uh, he wasn't lying. Uh, it was just unbelievable how how they can twist the facts. The the truth is that uh, experts knew uh, of the dangers of this virus as early as February, and obviously the president of the United States was, was um, uh, informed of all of this. He knew it, uh, as uh, Woodward now has, uh, of course, uh, uh, written. And uh, it is just unconscionable that nothing was done about this. And this this idea that he wanted to create panic, I mean, to me, this is just ridiculous. That was the point at which panic should have been created because that's what people needed. They needed to be frightened so that they would take some sort of measure. I mean, you know, this, this is not the common cold. Uh, we are now looking at close to 200,000 people in, in the U.S. dying uh, from this. Okay, anyway, I want to talk a, a bit more about this. I want to talk a little bit more about vaccine and whether or not it is likely that we're going to have one uh, by uh, the important date of November 3rd. Uh, I doubt that very much, but we'll talk a bit more about vaccines. Anyway, you're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We're going to take a break, check in on what's going on in the world with the news, and then we'll be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We just heard on the news that we had, what, close to 600 new cases this weekend here in Quebec of uh, COVID-19. And uh, yet there are those people out there demonstrating uh, against masks. Uh, ridiculous. But what is even more frightening is that some of these people were carrying uh, placards and flags anointed with the QAnon symbol. Uh, th this is... Uh, just totally amazing. Uh, QAnon is this, this far-right conspiracy theory uh, that there's some some sort of uh, conglomerate of Satan-worshipping pedophiles, and they're running some sort of child sex trafficking ring, and they're plotting against President Trump, uh, who of course is is fighting them and is fighting the deep state uh, because the deep state is controlled by these these people, and. Uh, uh, it it is so absurd that you just you know wonder if if there isn't someone behind this who is just saying, well let me see what is the most idiotic thing that we can come out with and that we can get people to believe and that we can start spreading around. I mean this QAnon is is in that that category. The idea that there is some sex trafficking ring being run from the basement of a, a pizza shop in in Washington and that this is influencing world politics, and that there's some sort of conspiracy going on between uh, President, former President uh, Obama and Hillary Clinton and George Soros to, to uh, somehow create a new government. Uh, I, it's, it's so mind-bogglingly uh, ridiculous that uh, it's even you know, it's disturbing to talk about it, how anyone could believe this. And how can it be that the president of the U.S. does not come out and say that this is nonsense and I don't want support from these people? But he hasn't said that. 
he welcomes any kind of support. We've seen that he welcomes support from, from white supremacists, and now he welcomes support from, from uh, QAnon. The right thing to do would be to say, there are some things that I just can't accept in, in terms of, of people who are, are uh, behind me. I do not want QAnon people behind me. They are not uh, uh, part of my life. Unfortunately, they seem to be a part of his life, and he's not saying the right things. Okay. Anyway, uh, let me just get to uh, Sophia here, who may have an answer to uh, my question. Hey, Sophia. Hello. Hi. Uh, the answer is a high-intensity uh, high sweetener for monk fruit. Yes, that's it. It's one of these non-caloric sweeteners. And these days, of course, uh, people are shying away from the artificial sweeteners like you know aspartame and and sucralose they're looking for the quote natural alternatives and monk fruit is one of these uh, monk fruit contains uh, uh, several compounds which are are very very sweet and they're three to four hundred times sweeter than sugar so that you can get away by using a lot less uh, of these the only trouble is that uh, the compounds that are found in monk fruit also uh, leave kind of a licorice-like aftertaste. Some people like it, others don't. And of course, there are other such natural sweeteners. Uh, stevia is one. There's a compound called ribodicide uh, in uh, this uh, South American plant they, extracted from leaves. Yeah. They all have bitter or abnormal aftertaste. Yeah, they do. And I, I, they're yeah. very costly ingredients to work with. I, I don't. Uh, I don't like them. Uh, I'm. I'm not partial to any kind of sweetener. I mean, you can learn pretty well to just drink water. You don't need any of these uh, uh, concoctions. Take real sweetener. Take less. No, that's, that's my a, motto. That, that's that's right, and that's that is indeed a very good motto. Thank okay. you. Have a nice day. Bye. Uh, okay, let's go to John. John. Yes, hi, Dr. Schwartz. Hi. Um, I'd like to have your uh, two cents on the approach that Sweden took uh, to COVID-19 in that, uh, from what I heard uh, earlier, the, the number of deaths uh, after the, the spike in uh, March and April had gradually uh, been going down ever since. Yes, I'll even give you more than two cents. I'll give you five cents. Thank how's, you. How's that? Um it is certainly true that Sweden did not have the uh, enforced the lockdown measures like we had here in North America or in uh, many other uh, European countries. Uh, they did have a very high death rate, which is now decreasing, as, as you said, uh, but uh, it is still uh, the highest in, in Europe, and uh, it is very disproportional to the, the population. Now, they say that a lot of these were in uh, homes of elderly and, um, you know, um, uh, old-age homes, etc. cetera. Uh, and now, uh, because that population has thinned out, now the uh, incidence is decreasing. However... And one thing that is very important to understand here is that while there was no forced shutdown in Sweden, the Swedes abided by the uh, advice that the government was giving. And Swedes are, are uh, in general, very compliant uh, with uh, uh, government. It's, it's a you know highly socialistic state where people care about each other. And they have always cared about each other. And 
uh, even before this whole COVID uh, uh, business, if you saw people standing in line for buses or for trains in Sweden, it's not like here where they're all smashing into each other trying to get on. They all stand uh, spaced out. And there are numerous pictures you can look on the, on the internet and see what it looks like with you know, the Swedes lining up at, uh, at, at bus stops. And although the government did not say that you must stay inside, most Swedes did. And they, uh, they recognized the, the danger of this virus and they took the advice. So there was no near need for the enforcement because people were doing what uh, the government was suggesting uh, that they do. Uh, I think that the card that, that somehow uh, Sweden has beaten the odds and has achieved uh, herd immunity, that card has been misplayed because it's not true. There's no herd immunity yet in uh, in Sweden, and uh, you know, like I said, the, the the real Swedish factor here is that the Swedes are very compliant and they behave the way that people should behave. They uh, they stayed away from each other. They didn't have large indoor uh, indoor gatherings, and uh, traditionally, uh, Swedes uh, do a lot of outdoor activities anyway. So anyway, that's that's the uh, Sweden view but you know uh, right. I, I I think that uh, here uh, we're looking at a totally different situation where uh, people are, are not as compliant they don't follow the the advice and I that's why we need uh, a stronger hand okay no. all right well uh, Nobody has, uh, you know, on monopoly on the truth. Uh, nobody really knows uh, what uh, the answer is going to be. There's, there's not going to be one answer. There's uh, uh, many, many things that we can do. I mean, obviously, uh, physical distancing is, is one. Wearing of masks is, is another. Uh, but uh, no, no, nobody knows exactly what we should do. And uh, this, uh, this game, unfortunately, will just have to be played out. And uh, I think I'm afraid that Dr. Fauci is right uh, when he said uh, yesterday or two days ago that we are not going to see a dramatic change in this in, in uh, less than a year. All right, I still want to talk to you about vaccines, but we've got to take another break. We'll check traffic and we'll be back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Here's another piece of information we don't want to hear. Uh, a recent uh, study showed that uh, people who were uh, infected uh, with the coronavirus, uh, you know, at least showed a positive test, uh, were more likely to have eaten out in a restaurant in the prior two weeks than people who showed uh, negative. Uh, again, it's just uh, another point that uh, getting close to people indoors uh, can be an issue. Anyway, uh, uh, let me get back to the vaccines that I wanted to talk to you about. The word avoid, one of the most common bits of advice that you hear these days, avoid tap water, avoid bottled water, avoid butter, avoid margarine, avoid the sun, avoid sweeteners, avoid genetically modified foods, avoid plastic bags, avoid paper bags, avoid preservatives, avoid dairy, avoid meat, avoid soy, avoid other people. Well, you know, you know all of this. I could go on and on with these avoids. 
there are some valid points to be made with some of these, but there is one avoid that that just disturbs me to no end. Advising parents to avoid childhood vaccination. This is scientifically unjustified and dangerous. And of course, now we're going to have the problem of people avoiding the COVID-19 vaccine if we should get one. I, I think the chance that we're going to have an effective and safe vaccine that we know to be effective and safe by November, I think this is pie in the sky. Uh, I don't think we can possibly know uh, about this because it takes years of uh, experience uh, to determine whether or not there are any uh, small-scale side effects and whether or not there's uh, true efficacy. I think that there will be a vaccine or, in fact, several vaccines that will be uh, rolled out. Uh, but uh, we won't know for sure just how safe and effective they are. And uh, I, I think that in some cases it may be worth taking a gamble given the, the uh, drastic situation that we're involved in. Anyway, vaccines just may be the most significant medical advance in history. It's difficult to estimate the number of lives saved, but it's in many, many millions to say nothing of the countless number of people who have been spared the misery of mumps, measles, whooping cough, and polio. Uh, I, I can myself vouch for the agony of whooping cough because I had it when I was uh, young. It's feeling as if you're going to cough your lungs out. It's a memory that doesn't leave you easily. Well, obviously I survived, but one of my grade two classmates did not. And uh, how often can one say that the disease has been completely wiped off the face of the earth by medical intervention? Well, the last case of smallpox was recorded in 1978. The World Health Organization estimates that in the 20th century, smallpox killed as many as 500 million people, and that as recently as 1967, it was responsible for 2 million annual deaths. Other vaccines may not have eradicated diseases, but they have curbed their incidence very significantly. Whooping cough cases in North America have declined from a pre-vaccination peak rate of about 300,000 per year to roughly 10,000. Measles from a million cases annually to 100. Diphtheria and polio, almost non-existent today in the developed world. The incidence of hepatitis B and tetanus have been reduced by a factor of 40, rubella by 200, mumps by 400. The effectiveness of immunization is simply beyond argument. How can there be an issue here? How can some parents choose not to vaccinate their children? It really is a conundrum. But the answer likely lies in a growing distrust of the medical establishment, a discredited but widely publicized scientific study, inaccurate information being spread on the internet, and a lack of understanding of the difference between an association and a cause and effect relationship. Although we may not think of it in such terms, the decisions we make in life often come down to risk-benefit analysis. Whether it is flying in airplanes, eating smoked meat, taking cholesterol-lowering medication, or vaccination, there are always pluses and minuses to consider. There's no denying that immunization does come with some risk. Rashes, joint pain, fever are well documented, as are occasional lapses in the speed with which safety issues concerning vaccines have been addressed. Oral polio vaccines, which were more convenient to administer than the injected form, were responsible for actually causing the disease in rare cases. Yet some 20 years were allowed to pass before switching back to the safer injectable form. 
An infant vaccine against an intestinal infection striking roughly 4 million babies a year in North America was found to cause an increase in life-threatening cases of bowel collapse and had to be abandoned. Although there is no scientific evidence linking the mercury-containing preservative thiomerosal to any disease, it probably should have been removed from vaccines more speedily when ill effects attributed to mercury in other contexts became apparent. Vaccines, in a sense, are becoming victims of their success. As memories of the horrors of the original diseases that they prevent fade, more attention is being focused on possible harmful side effects. Indeed, one can judge the progress of society by looking at its worries. Instead of having to be concerned about millions dying from smallpox or coming down with measles or whooping cough, we worry about the possibility of vaccination being linked with some cases of autism. That suggestion was raised in 1998 by a paper published in the British medical journal The Lancet. Andrew Wakefield and 12 colleagues claimed that the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, we know that as MMR vaccine, caused a bowel disease, which then caused autism. The report received extensive publicity and triggered public demonstrations against mandatory vaccination. Most scientists were skeptical of the Wakefield study, and their skepticism was borne out by the results of an investigation published in 2002 in the New England Journal of Medicine. Danish researchers had examined immunization records and autism diagnosis for all children born between 91 and 1998 and found that unvaccinated children were just as likely to be diagnosed with autism as those who had received immunizations. The Lancet study was further discredited when it was revealed that Wakefield had failed to disclose receiving a large grant from a group of lawyers who were looking for ammunition and lawsuit against vaccine manufacturers. In the end, 10 of Wakefield's co-authors retracted their support of the original research, saying that in retrospect the results as reported were not valid. The paper was eventually withdrawn. Other studies around the world also refuted the link between vaccines and autism, but a vocal group of anti-vaccine advocates maintains that a witch hunt has been organized against Wakefield to protect vaccination interests. Humbug. The fact is that autism commonly shows up roughly at the same age that vaccines are given, and an association can readily be mistaken for a cause-and-effect relationship. But even if there really were a link between autism and vaccination, the anti-vaccine movement would still not be justified. The benefits still overwhelm the risks. In Britain, the consequences of the vaccine scare are already being seen with rising rates of mumps, rubella, and measles, and we are seeing that in North America too. There's no question that the benefits of vaccines outweigh the risks, and that is always what we have to consider. So now, when we are going to have some vaccines rolled out against COVID-19, yes, there will be some problems encountered. We saw already this week that one of these uh, uh, trials had to be temporarily stopped, although it was resumed. This is the so-called Oxford vaccine trial uh, done in conjunction with AstraZeneca because there was one case of a subject in England who came down with some, some symptoms that they were unable to, to uh, know what, uh, what the cause was. So they are going to restart that study. Anyway, that's my rant for today. Wear your masks. Uh, vaccines are a great benefit. And we'll talk more next week. Until then, we'll see you same time, same station next week. And I hope until then, all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.